I always tell people like the example of an independent contractor is you hire some guy to mow your yard, right? Yeah, you have some control over it. You you can tell him how much you're going to pay for it. You can tell him when you want him to come. If you live in a neighborhood with an HOA, maybe he can't come before 8 a.m., you know, whatever. But you don't really control what he does and you don't control whether he brings five guys to do the job or two guys to do the job. Uh, you just want, here's a hundred bucks, mow my yard. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. There are a few areas of employment law where a well-meaning but too clever for their own good employer can get in more trouble than in how they classify and compensate their employees. And with a very pro-employee presidential administration and cash-strapped federal and state budgets, the three-headed dragon of legislators, regulators, and litigators is focusing on how employees are paid and, a cynic might suggest, more importantly, how their taxes are paid. So today we wrap up our HR New Year's resolution series as we discuss paying your employees correctly in 2023. Joining me to discuss how employers need to think about paying their employees fairly and legally, which are not always the same thing, is Patrick Richter. Patrick is a partner at Rigby Slack, an Austin-based law firm serving businesses across the U.S. Patrick is board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization in Labor and Employment Law, and he represents employers nationally in all types of employment disputes, including class and collective actions. He also has considerable experience with matters before the National Labor Relations Board and in assisting clients with union avoidance. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Patrick. Good to be here. So before we get into the regulation and litigation area, let's just talk about what the pandemic's done to the employer-employee relationship. I mean, the gig economy exploded. We had a social justice reawakening. Then we had the great resignation, and now we're around the corner from a, a recession, probably. So we're in a different world than in 2019. So what's changed in the last three years that you really see as significant in the employment area? I think the biggest thing that got turned on its head was the was just people working remotely. You know, I spent the first 25 years of my career with people asking for an accommodation and wanting to work from home, and it was impossible. We just can't do it, you know. Um, and I know the pandemic sort of forced it on people. It wasn't something that was planned, but I think working remotely is here to stay. And I think that a lot of the arguments that we used to make against it seem kind of silly at this point. Yeah, I I never dream. I mean, we're a data company. We have PII for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And, and I never dreamed we'd be remote. And March 2020, we were remote. And productivity stayed up and our data security proved to be as strong as ever. And we're remote. And I yeah. sold my office building. So, yeah, <laughs> we're not going back. I feel like the productivity was kind of the whatever, how our employers articulated the reason they didn't want folks working remotely. I think the fear of the productivity was the, the real driver of the, you know, re resistance to it, reluctance to it prior. And I don't know, I haven't seen this. I felt like during the pandemic, the productivity, you know, stayed where it was or even went up. But I don't know how much of that was you couldn't go anywhere and do anything. You, you know, you literally, your, your, your day was you got up, you got out of bed, you went to your computer screen and you sat there all day. You couldn't, you couldn't have you know, 
logged off to go do something else. There wasn't anything else to do. <laughs> Especially when the kids are home. I was hiding in my office working <laughs> so I didn't have to manage the kids and hoping somebody else would, you know, do it or that at least they wouldn't burn the house down. So and my kids are older, so I was lucky. Like I don't know how people who had little kids who needed, you know, constant yeah. attention, I don't know how they did it. You know, my kids I only had one at home by then and he was on autopilot. But you know, even that, um several of my employees are you know, are younger adults with younger children. And I mean, we, we give our employees a ton of flexibility, but you know, they just drop in the zoom chat and say, Hey, you know, I gotta, I gotta go feed Susie and I'll be back in 15 minutes. And we're cool with that because the work's getting done and, and we've got other measures other than, you know, where they, did they have the nose, their nose to the grindstone all day long? It's, you know, is the work getting done? Is the quality there? Then I can, you know, I can roll with anything. And I think that's a change. And I think some employers haven't adapted to that quite as well as, uh, you know, but it's just a reality of, um, you know, working remote, you're going to have distractions you didn't have at the office, but then you don't have some of the distractions you had at the office. So, and you don't commute, I think, which is a lot of people really appreciate. Yeah. So the two big conversations around the Fair Labor Standards Act tend to be who is who who is and who isn't an employee and of those who really are bona fide employees who is covered by FLSA and the overtime provisions and who's not so let's start with that second area the exempt versus non-exempt employees where do you see mistakes being made by employers in that area I think some of it's just sort of common common knowledge fallacy you know um, people think that if they pay somebody a salary that they're automatically exempt um, and, and they're not, you know, you have to, you have to meet both prongs of the, the exemption. You have to be paid on a salary basis. And then you also have to meet the duties test for one of the, one or more of the exemptions. Um, and, and, and the salary basis thing is one that really trips people up. It seems simple, but it's not, you know, you have to pay somebody the same thing every week, regardless of the number of hours or days they work. There's some loopholes to that in terms of paid time off plans and sick plans and things like that. But anybody whose income is variable based on how much they work isn't going to be properly considered exempt no matter what their job duties are. And on a on a broad scale, what's the rule of thumb for the the rest of the the tests for uh, exempt versus non-exempt employees? You mean like the executive, administrative, yeah. and professional? Yeah, yeah it, it really is a focus on the job duties of the employee. And, and some of them are relatively straightforward, like a professional, obviously an attorney or a doctor or somebody who has a certain level of education. Teachers fall into that category. Uh, they're automatically exempt. Executive and administrative, it, it comes down to supervision of multiple employees or running with responsibility and discretion uh, either the, the business or uh, some piece of the business, some division or component of the business. And there are pages of, of guidance from <laughs> the, the Department of Labor on, on their website and the Texas Workforce Commission has their own stuff to help figure it out. But uh, I, I see a lot of employers still classifying people as exempt and you just look at what they're doing all day and it's it's convenient for the employer for them to be exempt uh, from just, you know, a timekeeping point of view or just, you know, having somebody who they could just call seven days a week, 24 hours a day and ask them to do stuff. But when you look at it, they're they're not exempt. And 
maybe it's not so important if they're not ever working over 40 hours, but that's really where it gets hairy, right? Right. Because if you, if you get that wrong and then you have somebody who leaves your employment or even if they're still with you and they come back and they say, hey, I was misclassified. Uh, if you were treating them as exempt, you probably weren't keeping track of their hours. And so in that situation, what the employee says about how much they worked is presumed to be accurate unless you as the employer can prove otherwise. So you get yourself in a lawsuit where somebody who worked for you for four or five years says, gosh, I, you know, I was working 60 hours a week. And then you don't have anything that you can point to uh, to prove otherwise because you weren't keeping track of their hours. Uh, and you can you can you can backdoor into that sometimes as the employer, especially in a in a the technology driven world that we're in, you know, logins and logouts and when people are coming to the office, sometimes you can have badge swipes or card swipes or things like that to try to piece it together. Um, but if you're the employer, you really don't want to be in that boat. You don't want to be trying to prove that the employee only worked 40 hours a week or less. And there's there's at least one case before the Supreme Court right now that kind of takes on a, a unique area of FLSA concerns, the Helix case. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah. So that has to do with a, an exemption for what, what the regs call highly compensated employees. So in addition to the sort of normal executive, administrative, and professional exemptions, there's one for uh, highly compensated employees. And I think right now that's like 107000 annually you have to make to fit into that category. And if you do, then the executive, administrative, and professional tests are, are, are a little more loosely applied. You just have to kind of do some of the duties of one or more of those exemptions. Um, the idea being, if you make enough money, that you're not really the kind of person that the FLSA was intended to protect with minimum wage and overtime. Uh, but this Helix case has to do with whether these guys were actually paid on a salary basis. Nobody really disputes that they're highly compensated. Nobody they were making disputes. over 200000 right? Yeah, they were making yeah. serious yeah. bucks. They were out working on an oil rig, right? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Uh, and nobody really disputes that they meet the duties test for being exempt. The issue is, you know, how they're paid and, and they're paid in a way that a lot of oil field workers are, are paid. They're paid a day rate. Okay. So if they show up and work at all in a day, they get call, round up a number, call it $500, something that even by the hour would be way north of, of, of minimum wage. Uh, but they, in the, in the Helix case in particular, they weren't, well, let me back up and say it a different way. To, the regs say you can pay somebody not on a salary basis. You can pay them on a day rate basis or a project basis, but they still have to be guaranteed at least a certain minimum every week. And then that minimum has to bear some relationship to the amount of work that they do. And that last piece was tricky for me, right? So the minimum salary to be exempt is like $687 a week. And that, but that reasonable relationship test is so that you don't set the floor so ridiculously low that paying the guy for one day meets the, the weekly minimum. It has to be ballpark what they would make if they worked a regular week. Um, and so anyway, the, these Helix guys were working, they said crazy hours um, and getting paid a day rate yeah, 60 or 80 hours a week, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the overtime number when they, you know, they've won, it's still on appeal. But if they're ever actually getting, given a judgment, the overtime number is going to be ridiculously big. <laughs> uh, 
but it has to do with this issue of of the the amount that they get paid and and whether there's a, a minimum guarantee. And in the Helix case, they weren't guaranteed a minimum. So if they worked four days, they got paid four times whatever the daily rate was, and they didn't have this um, minimum that they were always going to get. And the Fifth Circuit heard it and said, gosh, you know, look, this is just a, a plain, straightforward reading of the regs that the Department of Labor has promulgated on this. Uh, there's some argument from the employer side and some of the amicus folks who chimed in to say kind of what I said before, what you said before about how much these guys were making and Hey, they're not really intended uh, to be the kind of people who get overtime and at $200,000 a year, you know, the argument, and an argument has to do with technically how the regs all fit together and whether if you're a highly compensated employee, do you just automatically opt out of any of the other questions? Right. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? As far as right. the, if, if I meet this criteria, the rest don't apply. And, and what the Fifth Circuit did when they looked at it was they said, no, look, the, the regs are clear. You can be paid on, on less than a weekly basis and meet the salary basis test, but you have to have a guaranteed minimum. And that minimum has to bear some relationship to the amount you would make in kind of a regular week. And so the arguments from the other side, I don't think are particularly persuasive. I'd like for them to be, <laughs> you know, I have clients who are in the oil business who have paid people on a day rate basis for a long time, who are going to be looking in the, in their files to see how much money are they going to owe to employees if this, if this goes through, but it, it's kind of put some of the the usual suspects in, in a, in odd positions, right? Uh, when it went up to the Supreme Court, the the more conservative judges were applying this sort of textualist view of the the regs and the law and saying, this is pretty clear, you know, that, that even highly compensated, you have to meet the salary basis test. And, and if you're not paid this minimum and it doesn't have this reasonable relationship, then you, you fail and you're entitled to overtime. And, and then you had the more liberal judges who you would think would be more employee friendly saying, well, but these guys make 200 grand a year, you know, are they really entitled to overtime? Yeah. That, that textualism is a two edged sword, I guess. And, and, you know, suddenly certain people who are advocating against textualism on certain issues are probably arguing for it in, in this one. Yeah. And really interesting to me, I, I kind of sometimes get off into the weeds of these things, but really interesting to me is this, it, and it came up in the oral arguments. It hasn't really come up in the briefing. But it has to do with this idea uh, of what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And it's a relatively conservative legal principle that says Congress can't delegate legislative power to the executive branch. And in the Fair Labor Standards Act context, it, I don't mean to get off the track here, but I think this is, is interesting. Do you remember in 2016, before he was, while he was on his way out, President Obama proposed and made regulations that said that we're going to raise the minimum salary right. for the normal executive administrative and professional exemptions. And it was going to about double the amount yeah, of that minimum from salary. From like 30 to 60 or something like that, right? Yeah. They do it on a weekly basis, but it was yeah. like from like 475 to like 925 or something. Right. Um, and, and those regs hadn't been updated in years. It was time for them to be updated. And if you're making $450 a week, ballpark, whatever that number is, what is that? 45,000 mm -hmm. 
I'm not doing the number. I yeah. can't do the math in my head, but it's not much. You could you could be relatively lightly compensated, and you would have met the salary minimum salary threshold back then. Right. Anyway, so President Obama proposed to to raise that floor to 900 and something. And there was a lawsuit that was heard in the Eastern District of Texas by Judge Mazant, and he enjoined he enjoined that regulation and said, no, you can't do that. And part of why he said it was he said that the statute doesn't give the Department of Labor really the power to set a minimum salary, that his view was the statute only talks about these exemptions in terms of job duties and gives the Department of Labor discretion to define what those job duties are, but it nowhere gives them the authority to set a, a minimum salary number. Right. Now, he enjoined it not long after 2016. This was like November of 2016 when he issued that order. Um, and, the, and I think those, those, that increased salary amount was supposed to go into effect 1-1 of 17. Um, so he enjoined it. 2017, Donald Trump becomes president. He backs off of that order anyway, and kind of also in in, in the sort of textualism, you know, fits sometimes and sometimes doesn't. Trump actually raised the minimum salary from in the mid fours to six seventy five or six eighty something, and no, and none of the people who sued when President Obama did it thought right. to sue the second time around, but. Anyway, this idea of the the non delegation doctrine crept into the oral arguments in this in this Helix case. Judge Justice Kavanaugh said, "Look, I don't think you have the right to kind of dive into this topic anyway." The Department of Labor. So the regs don't really matter. It's only what the statute says. Is kind of that theory. So it'll be real interesting to see. They heard those arguments in October uh, of this year. So it ought to be one of the earlier cases that comes out in the summer when they start issuing opinions. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 77 and enter the keyword FLSA. That's F-L-S-A. On February 8th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Mitigating Bias in the Employee Selection Process. We'll discuss the most common ways bias sneaks into or is baked into the recruitment, interviewing, and selection process and systemic changes that can help mitigate bias in selecting employees. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after February 8th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Pat Richter. In addition to the other thing I think is interesting is in addition to the, the non-delegation stuff, the that Chevron deference that's been going on for decades is seems to be dying in a lot of ways. Do you see that on the labor side that, that DOL and other agencies are maybe challenged as to how much deference the court should give them in their, in their role? 
what's connected to this, that theory, uh, some of the erosion of that Chevron deference is when the, the judges say the agency is legislating rather than, you know, it's getting out of its lane. It's getting into Congress's lane. Having now we're you know, a couple of years into the Biden administration, you know, and so we're at the point where maybe they've had opportunities to publish regs and, and get public comment and start to implement some stuff. Do you see anything significant as far as overtime pay calculation or exempt, non-exempt statuses coming out of, out of the administration? I know that they've been talking for a long time about another rule to, to adjust the, the minimum salary and to, to make new regs on the sort of basic overtime principles, but, but they haven't done it yet. Um, and they keep kicking the can down the road on that. The one that they've done or trying to do by regulation is uh, the independent contractor test. You know, uh, for ha as long as I've been an employment lawyer, it depends on where you are and who you're in front of. There's 8 million different tests for who's an independent contractor and who's not. Yeah, and which taxing authority you're dealing with. Is it a state or is it a yeah, federal? And yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I have a, I have a relatively cynical view of it. <laughs> I feel like no matter what, depending on the situation you're in, uh, it's not consistent um, whether folks are treated as independent contractors or not. And, you know, the Biden administration is trying to tighten it up. California did that a few years ago. Uh, they had they issued a, a statewide regulation that, that made it much more difficult to classify workers as independent contractors the proposed rule that the Biden administration put out purports to do the same thing, but it's going to run into a court system mm -hmm. that's now filled with, you know, judges appointed by Donald Trump who may or may not follow the guidance that's going to be in these regulations, you know, for any, any number of reasons, or they might just decide, yeah, okay, those are the right five factors to look at, but no, the employee failed to, tick enough boxes to prove that they were an employee and not an independent contractor. And a big part of the, the, the Biden administration approach is about economic dependence, right? Is, is, Correct. is this person, how this independent contractor and in, in scare quotes is, uh, how, how dependent are they on the employer and this specific company, you know, you know, whoever they're contracting with, uh, for their, for their economic well being. So, can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and, and maybe what how the Biden administration sees it versus, you know, the way reality, what you see and, and when you're really dealing with employers? Well, what's interesting, I, I don't know that it even is so much a Biden administration issue. Even in, even when the law seems clear on these independent contractor tests, you, you read, you know, the old IRS test, which is like 22 factors long, and you'd get to the end of it and it would just say, well, what are the economic realities? I feel like all, all we end up doing is we end up putting different labels on six or seven different categories of information and then we get to the end and we still say almost like a, a smell test. Like, does this person actually feel like an independent contractor or not? Um, and, and, you know, so some of the guidance that the, the new regs are trying to, to do, trying to implement, just try to clarify some of those and push the needle a little bit one way or the other. And I think the, the one that always seems obvious to me is, is this so-called independent contractor? Are they out there offering their services 
to other companies or are they just working for this one company as an independent contractor uh, and how much of what they do is tied to what that employer does on a regular basis. Those, those seem yeah. like the two, those seem like the two that, you know, if it, you know, if it smells like a skunk, it's probably a skunk. Right. Right. Yeah. No, if you, if, if somebody's like in the main production side of the business and it's not on a temporary basis, it's hard to argue that they're really an independent contractor, you know, look at who they're working alongside. Are they working with employees? And then, like you said, are they able to go work for other people? You know, I always tell people like the example of an independent contractor is you hire some guy to mow your yard, right? right. Yeah, you have some control over it. You, you can tell him how much you're going to pay for it. You can tell him when you want him to come. If you live in a neighborhood with an HOA, maybe he can't come before 8 a.m., you know, whatever. But you don't really control what he does and you don't control whether he brings five guys to do the job or two guys to do the job. Uh, you just want, here's a hundred bucks, mow my yard. You right. know, uh, and if you start to drift away from that to, oh, well, you can just sit right next to the other employee who's writing software code uh, and you're going to write code, but we're just going to pay you a fraction of what this other guy makes or we're not going to pay you overtime. You know, it's harder and harder to make that argument that they're really an independent contractor. I had a so client recently. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, please. No, they, they, were, they were wanting to have this, this category of worker be called an independent contractor. And we, we kind of got it worked out. And they're like, well, we also want them to sign a non-compete. And so I, I don't think that's going to work like that, you know, because you're really then you're completely cutting them off from being able to work for anyone else. Right. And if you're going to say, you know, the, the economic realities or the business dependence or however you want to phrase it, if I lock you down and I don't let you work for somebody else, I don't know how you're going to escape being called an employee. And what do you think that approach has to do is going to impact like the gig economy? I mean, that thing's, you know, it used to be the gig economy, you know, maybe I'm going to hire a graphic artist online for, you know, to do one little project for me or, or I'm going to call an Uber and get in the car and, and, you know, and have somebody, you know, perfect stranger drive me across town. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what do you think? I mean, now, I mean, it's, it's, it's exploded and there's a whole, you know, it's a whole new economic model and the surveys all say, this is what the employees want. They want the flexibility to set their own hours and they want all this, but makes it a lot harder to tax and a lot of government entities aren't, aren't thrilled about it. What do you think is going to happen to the gig economy? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what would you, how would you advise an, a, a client who is saying, Hey, you know, we want to, we want to use more gig workers. Uh, what would, what would your advice be or, or what were the, what questions would you ask them to help them figure out if, how, what their liability might be? Yeah. I, I mean, I'd start with how essential to your operation are these people? Like I, you know, we were just saying the closer they are to sort of the heart of the business, the harder it is to argue that they're employees and not independent contractors. Um, I'd, I'd start there. Um, you know, the other thing you can do with any of these people, uh, instead of trying to wedge them into some classification that they don't fit in, you can always pay somebody by the hour, whatever sure. rate you want to pay them by the hour, and you can track their time and you can just tell them you're not allowed to work more than 40 hours in a week. Now, you have to enforce that rule. And if an employee breaks the rule and works more than 40 hours in a week without permission, you still have to pay them overtime. But that's an at-will employee. And right. as long as you paid them right. You can't fire them in retaliation for pointing out that you didn't give them overtime, but 
you could tell folks, look, you can you can sort of gig your way into being an employee here, right? You can work when you want to, you can do projects as you want to. Um, and I'm not going to try to call you an independent contractor and run that risk. I'm going to call you an employee, but you track your time. And if you go over 40 in a week without permission, I'm going to let you go. But an employer, when they get down that road, they do have tax withholding liabilities. They've got FICA and all those other responsibilities that they've got to take care of. And it's not as easy as just, okay, you send me, you know, send me a bill for the five hours and I'll just write you a check and we'll move on and I'll send you a 1099 in January. It's not as easy, but if you're, if you're trying to be conservative uh, and not have the potential downside risk, you know, two years later when the person leaves and, and is going to sue you, it's, it's, it's a much more risk averse approach to putting somebody in a job like that. Well, and that's what I'm always uh, when I'm consulting with employers, telling them is, yeah, everything's fine as long as everybody's happy, but nobody stays <laughs> happy forever. And and someday this person is going to leave your employment, and often, unexpectedly, that's not a happy you know breakup. And uh, now they think they always feel like they're something they're owed something, and maybe they are, they aren't. But you know how much how much risk do you want to put in that you have to defend that because that can get pretty expensive. I feel like that's what happened a lot, not even just in that in that Helix case, but you know, I've done for a number of years uh, class actions that were all oil field uh, hourly workers who weren't paid overtime. You know, those guys were working twelve hour shifts, seven on, seven off. And so there's no question they were putting in more than forty hours in a week, and the employer knew it, but they were making a bunch of money, and the, nobody thought the gravy train was going to end. And then when the oil market went south, and those guys all got laid off, like you said, they, they got uh, they got unhappy, and they went and found plaintiffs' lawyers who made a lot of money bringing those cases. Well, and let's remember, I mean, our oil field, our friends here are the oil field workers. They love to spend money when it's when it's flowing. I mean, you know, you got to West Texas when the when the when oil is about seventy or eighty dollars a barrel or higher. There's a lot of big trucks on the road, a lot of fancy tires, you know, and uh, all that money's gone. And suddenly they got to feed their family, and and uh, the the work's gone. Uh, suddenly, uh, you know, they I've I've put up with this long enough. I, this is not fair. And so you know, it's uh, a little yeah, different. I I can't tell you how many clients I ha I've had who somebody works for them for years, they end up leaving and then they come back with a claim for overtime. And I say, gosh, you know, this looks, this looks bad for you. You probably owe this person overtime. And they're like, well, they worked for me for years and they never had a single complaint. I'm like, well, that's not how it works. You know, <laughs> they don't, they don't have to complain while they're working for you to, to preserve their claim for unpaid overtime. And if they don't have a really strong claim, if the employer doesn't have a really strong defense, the, if it goes to, uh, if the, you know, the DOL gets involved in it or it goes to a judgment, it's like treble damages. Is that right? If I recall, I mean, the, the level is, it's not just paying them strictly what they would have made in overtime, right? Yeah. So the, the, the overtime can pile up, right? And in, in that Helix case, if you made 200 grand a year and you were working 80 hours a week, that's going to be a lot of overtime. But, um, in most cases, the amount gets doubled as a liquidated mm. damage yeah. and, and the other way it can really pile up as, as, as the, if you're trying to defend one of the cases is the attorney's fees. So the FLSA is one of those places where a, a successful plaintiff can recover their fees. And 
I don't actually know off the top of my head right now whether this is by statute or regulation, but I know it to be the case that the recovery of attorney's fees in an FLSA case is is without regard to the amount of the recovery. Oh, wow. Um, so the judge can't look and say, oh, well, you asked for a million. The jury gave you half a million. We're going to cut your fees in half. Hmm. The The fees are the fees. And how that can become a problem for you as the employer defending one of those cases is the harder you fight a losing case, you're just piling up money for the plaintiff's lawyer. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're if, if you're going to if you're going to lose this Helix case, if you're going to lose a day rate case, settle it, <laughs> right. lose it, and get out. Like, don't let the plaintiff's lawyer spend four years finding two hundred plaintiffs and taking a bunch of depositions and flying all over the country, and then lose um, because they're going to get their attorney's fees on top of the the actual damages and then doubled uh, as liquidated damages. So as we wrap up our uh, our series on New Year's resolutions, well, how would you summarize the the HR New Re New Year's resolutions to make sure that you're legally and fairly paying your employees? What would you tell an employer to say, hey, in 2023, let's make sure we do this? I would say stay on top of changes that might be coming by regulation through either the independent contractor rule or the updates to the definitions or interpretations of the sort of regular white collar exemptions. Um, and I would say if you have day rate employees, you need to be really paying attention to this, this Helix case and how that turns out. Uh, and otherwise, you know, I think it's a good idea for employers regularly to sit down and, and look at, how are their people classified and really look at the job duties and say, does this person really fit into an exemption? And if we're stretching, then maybe we need to be a little bit more careful. Well, that's great. And thanks for joining me. That's all the time we have, but I appreciate your time today with me, uh, Patrick. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up. <laughs>